Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Being a Christian, you know, it's fundamentally a hopeful, trusting position to be in. And therefore, we don't have all the anxieties that everybody else seems to be talking about. I don't care about losing my job. I've got a job. I suppose that's one thing. But my health. The Lord's in control of everything and he's blessed us so far and every reason to believe he's faithful. And I think fundamentally, if you've got faith in Christ and you genuinely know and believe that he's got your life in his hands and your eternal life in his hands, then, like Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. Good evening. We're very pleased tonight to have Nigel McCoy, who's going to share with us how faith has impacted his life. How are you, Nigel? Uh, thank you. As a starting point to all my guests, I always ask, how did your home life start and what impact, if any, did Christianity have upon it? Okay, right. I was born in 1960 in Belfast the younger of two brothers, and my dad got a job in Chester. So when I was 11 months old, he moved us all to Chester. So I had my primary school in Chester. Then he got a promotion uh, to Glasgow. So I left primary school in the last year of primary, missed all the primary treats, you know, in the last <laughs> few months, went up in January to Scotland, went to secondary school in Glasgow and to university in Glasgow. Then my dad got promotion again, moved to Leeds. I followed him down there, finished my degree in Leeds, did my teacher training in Leeds, and started teaching in Birmingham because, surprise, surprise, he got a promotion and moved to Birmingham. So by now I'm in my 20s. So that's how my life started and went through to there. My dad and mum were Christians, Presbyterian. So when they were married, they wanted to be baptised through their Bible studies. They went to their minister said, can we be baptized? And he says, no, I can't baptize you. You've been baptized as babies. So they went to a Baptist minister outside Belfast and together with a load of other people, they were both baptized. And then they had a choice to either join a Baptist church or join a Brethren church. They joined a Brethren assembly. That was when we were just little toddlers. My brother was two years, two months and two days older than me. I've got OCD. So we were just in to the kind of brethren set up when we moved to Chester. We were then taken to Sunday school. My dad, it was a very small assembly of about 12 or 16, something like that. My dad, obviously the youngest man at 28. They just had a vision to move out of, they had their, their assembly was in the viaduct next to the Chester station. Okay. So, you know, those kind of, you know, when you're going from, from Gateshead to the Tyne Bridge, there's a, a lot of, most of them are car manufacturers yeah, and car yeah. fitters in the kind of arches underneath the railway. 
so that's that's where the Brethren Assembly was. It was in the arches uh, under a railway in Chester. I don't know how they did this, but they got enough money to build a church on a new, brand new estate in Chester. Okay. So that's where I went to Sunday school. My dad preached a lot. Always used to take us. Would always say if we could answer the questions about the sermon on the way home, he would give us sweets and things. So we used to listen. Obviously, I came to the point when I realized that I wasn't going to get to heaven because my mum and dad were Christians. I think I must have been about seven or eight. I knelt down in my, in my bedroom in Chester and gave my life to the Lord. I was baptized in Glasgow when I was 12. There's a long answer to your first question. <laughs> I'll try and be shorter with all the rest of them. <laughs> Moving round four or five times in the space of the first 20 years of your life, did that come with any difficulties or issues? Was it hard to settle into new schools all of the time? Well, uh, Chester was, I mean, I didn't really remember Ireland. So when I was one, going to Chester, that was fine. So my first school was uh, where all my mates were. So it was tough leaving when you're 10, all your mates are going to Glasgow, which is massive. Secondary school is different than the fish. And I think probably moving at that age, it made our family very close. We kind of felt there's us four and we're going to a massive new place. So we kind of stuck together. Glasgow secondary education was an interesting experience because, first of all, with the name Nigel, <laughs> secondly, with an accent that's clearly not Scottish. I don't know if you think it sounds Irish, but they all thought it was English. Yeah. So an English guy going to a Scottish school in the middle of Glasgow called Nigel led to an interesting welcome. At so, least McCoyd uh, sounds Scottish. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess they, they didn't really listen to your name. They listened to the way you spoke. <laughs> so, yeah. So I had a kind of baptism of welcome from the Scots who aren't that keen on the English. And at, at age 11, they're particularly not keen. So school was a little bit difficult with some boys. I went to an all-boys school. So some of them wanted to assert their masculinity over me, so to speak. But uh, I had some very good friends there as well. My Christian faith, which, because of my dad's openness, I was very open about it. So there were loads of guys I invited to church, to youth club, etc., who came happily. But there were others who took that as a source of making taken. So the Christian Union, probably there was about five of us in it. You know, we all got the Mickey taken for various reasons. We were a, an odd collection of guys. Some guys who had short hair and glasses and some who were sporty. And so you got picked on for whatever. I suppose it just became something I accepted that if you're a Christian, people who aren't Christians and who don't like the claims of Christ will have a go at you. Yeah. But on the other side, I remember one day in the dinner queue, a guy blaspheming in front of me. And he turned around and saw it was me and he said, oh, sorry. And, you know, so when you're 12, it kind of resonates for you that people do know and do kind of expect you to behave in a certain way and they don't want to offend you. But then the others do. And I didn't take it. Did I take it personally? No, I took it that it was because I was a Christian. It wasn't because I was Nigel McCoy. It was it was my faith that was the, the reason for their attack. So although it was a bit personal, I did probably react badly at some stages I kind of took it as part of the course this, the New Testament is full of it so I didn't expect it to be any different particularly for me it doesn't sound as though you shied away from sharing your faith and being open about having a faith no I, I uh, if anything I was far more zealous then than I am now I think 
what, what you've touched on about me moving from Chester to Glasgow made our family very close. It gave my brother and I an identity that was, we are Christians. My dad was very active. He, he was on the television doing dramas. He was involved in music concerts, comparing. He was preaching. Because he'd been Presbyterian and he'd been involved in Boys Brigade and in shows and gang shows and comedy and drama and all of those things, he brought those with him, not without a few raised eyebrows, I think, uh, in, in the assemblies. But my dad was very evangelistic. He got opportunities to do stand-up in pubs in Glasgow, which you can imagine isn't the kind of normal thing that you might want to be doing. But he got a hearing and people were prepared to listen. And I think that's what I've learned, that you get a certain degree of antagonism, but actually people are prepared to give you a fair hearing, even if they want to reject what you say. Yeah. So, yes, I think I've always been quite... Some people might say it's courageous. I think it was in my DNA. I, I was kind of brought up to be clear about my faith, so I always have been. Yeah. You left off your initial answer by saying at age 20, you moved to Birmingham. Yeah. At what point do you meet your wife, Deborah? So I met her in Leeds. I did the first two years of my degree in Glasgow, and the, the Scottish degrees are four years. So when we moved to Leeds, I said I wanted to transfer to Leeds, which is really weird in England because nobody stays at their university at home in those days. I know people through finances now never do. Yeah, the Leeds University was shocked and they wanted to know, was I being kicked out because I hadn't done my work? Was I some kind of druggie who'd been kicked out for bad behaviour or whatever? Why was I moving universities? Because it was unheard of. But when they uh, when they sorted it all out, they accepted me. And it was when I went to Leeds that we went to the assembly, one of the assemblies in Leeds, and Deborah was there. She was, and still is, nearly five years younger than me. I was, what, 20? No, I was 18 when I went down. I went to uni when I was 16, moved when I was 18, graduated when I was 20. So when I was there, I was 18. So Deborah was 13. Um, not particularly at that stage in my mind as a future wife. Um, but hey-ho, eventually we kind of got back together. So when I went to Birmingham, although we had gone out a few times, when she was 16 and I was 20, our first official date, I think, was my 21st birthday party. When I moved to Birmingham, that kind of relationship finished. Okay. After four years in Birmingham, I went to Dublin. So six years after us finishing, we kind of bumped into each other again, decided that it had been a mistake to break up. We got married within a year of re-meeting. Very romantic. We won second prize in the Yorkshire Post Bride of the Year. It was really annoying because first prize was you had your whole wedding paid for. Second prize was you had a free meal in Harrogate. <laughs> so that's, that's a big come down for second we place. We went for the free meal anyway, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was it was printed in the Yorkshire Post because at the time Deborah was going to emigrate to Canada. She gave up Canada for me, so uh, I guess that got the sympathy vote of have a free meal in Harrogate. I wish I'd had the wedding paid for. <laughs> And she's not there to ask whether she ever regretted not moving to Canada. I ask her all the time, but still waiting for her to give the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> and while you're in Dublin, your first child is born, Daniel, is that right? Yeah, I went to Dublin. I started off as a teacher in Birmingham, so I taught for four years. Kind of was really drained by the whole demands of teaching and thought, you know, I'm not really making any difference for the Lord. However long we've got on this earth, 
there's a passage in Corinthians that says that the final analysis, everything you've done is kind of put in a fire and all the wood and the hay and the, you know, that all burns away and all you're left is with precious stones. And I thought to myself, my life is just full of wood and hay. I'm spending every bit of energy in, in my career. And uh, so an opportunity came to go and build a youth centre in the middle of Dublin for a Christian organisation, the YMCA. So I took it, went there for two years, worked every hour that the Lord provided. Uh, we got a building built. I got staff appointed. We got a massive debt paid off and money in the bank, etc., etc. And at that stage, my dad rang me one night and said, oh, we've been up in Leeds at some event of the church guests who we met. And I said, well, I don't know. You didn't meet Deborah, did you? Feeling very guilty because I've been the the culprit of the experience of your calling it off but uh, he said yes and uh, she's going to Canada we'll gloss over that the number of apologies I had to make over the phone but at least I was in Dublin and she was in Leeds she didn't have a chance to hit me quite there <laughs> but yeah we got married in 1989 and Daniel was born in Dublin in 1990 Deborah was quite lonely I mean I was still working a lot she had a little baby and no neither my parents nor her parents were anywhere near us it was difficult the YMCA was established. I've been there five years and we decided let's look back to the UK, see if we can get back over there. You came to the northeast of England. That must be a real blessing for you. Uh, Not that I'm biased. Yeah. Basically, my dad, in, in moving around the country with his, his Christian work as well as with his job, he had done some work with Peter Vardy. And Peter had invited him to the City Hall to do a couple of Christian outreach concerts with some choirs, etc. So when I said to my dad that I, I thought I'd better come back to the UK, I thought teaching, I'd probably burnt my bridges because I taught for four years and then been in youth work for five. So I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I had to find a job. And he said, well, here's four or five people. Why don't you ring them and see what they want to say? And one of them was Peter. So Peter said, well, I've just started a school in Gateshead why don't you come over and have a look at it and, and we'll talk. Cut a long story short, I came over. He thought there was a role I could do in Emmanuel College. It was just in its first year. Yeah. When we looked at it all, he offered me a job to start at the beginning of its second year. So 1991, Deborah and I moved back. We couldn't find a house that we could afford. Um, in Newcastle? So I lived in Newcastle, yeah. Wow. So I lived with my uncle who was a pastor in Hopeless Spring at the time. Okay. And Deborah went and lived, Deborah and Daniel went down and lived with her parents in Leeds. And we eventually found a house where we could afford in Chester Street. And we couldn't sell a house in Dublin. Right. And that was a real test. Um, because in terms of faith as a Christian growing up, so what age am I now? I'm 20, I'm 31 from a sell in Dublin. And most of the things in my life had gone okay. You know, I'd done okay at school. I'd got my degree. I'd got, got the first job I'd applied for. And, you know, everything was fine. So faith was never really something that had been too much tested. In fact, probably guiltily, I'd have to admit, I probably kind of thought when I came out of interviews and got them, I prayed before I went in, the Lord would help me. And then I came out and got the job and I thought, oh, well, I was quite, I'm quite good at interviews, actually. I'm quite clever and, you know, I've done well in my degree. And I kind of took a lot of credit myself or patted myself on the back a lot. But when it came to two things, first it had been Daniel because Deborah was really worried that although the scans were okay, 
you know, people who have birthmarks, you know, sometimes they have a birthmark on their face. Yeah. And both she and I knew somebody who had a very serious birthmark on her face. But those things don't show up on scans. And she was really worried that this unborn baby, because we didn't know whether it was a boy or a girl or when, was going to have a birthmark on their face. There was nothing I could say to say to her that that's not going to happen. And I realized, actually, I have no control over how healthy this baby is. Yeah. And so that was a real test for my faith because my degree wasn't going to help. <laughs> and this was the second. We couldn't sell our house. And I, I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't drag people off the street, convince them it was lovely, and get them to open their wallet. I really had to just trust the Lord was going to look after you all. And um, you might say at 30, I should have learned that. But nothing in my life had happened that really put me in a position where I had absolutely no control over something. Yeah. And I suppose, really, that, that faith without that isn't really faith. Faith in, I'm going to get a job, but I'm really quite clever and I did very well in the interview. That's not faith. Faith is when you are absolutely dependent on God only and not yourself. And that's what I'd exercised when I became a Christian, that I wasn't going to get to heaven because of me. I was going to get to heaven because of Jesus. But then in my Christian life, it took me till I was 30 till I had those two big experiences of no control over your child and no control over selling a house. <laughs> you might say they're not of the same importance. But um, so we, we stepped out in faith is the cliche, isn't it? We decided, my dad said, look, get a mortgage and buy a house. You've got to be together with your wife and your child. And, um, you know, get, get bridging finance because you'll end up with two houses and you'll sell the other house. So eventually we did sell the other house. We had to drop the price. And it was before the Celtic Tiger by about six months. Okay. So if I'd moved six months later, I'd have probably got seriously four times as much really? for the house we sold in Dublin. But uh, anyway. But then if you got all that money, you wouldn't need faith. Good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and my faith has been tested in a variety of ways in the, in the next 30 years. That's made it far more real. Um, so some of your listeners will recognise that. You know, when you're young, things seem to be okay, and then when you turn on the Lord for whatever reasons, you find Him faithful. But you've got to really just you've got to step out. It's like I don't know. You must have seen that film, uh, Raiders, not Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the um, I don't know which one it is. All I remember is it's the one where Indiana has to trust. And step into over a chasm to get to the last the Holy crusade or whatever it is, and he 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 just has to step out, not knowing that there's anything there, but just believing it will be there. Yeah. Sometimes you have to step out and just believe God's word and His promises are true. So just get on and live it. Yeah, it's the last crusade because I watched it last week. Oh, did you? Yeah. It's scary, isn't it? But when you know that that's what we do. We we put our life in the Lord's hands, and lo and behold, He turns up. With a rock under your feet, yeah, it's 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 just great being a Christian. One of the things that has come out of several of the interviews so far in this podcast series is that it's really only been when faith has been tested that it's been strengthened. You know, we have that kind of initial saving faith, and then we we kind yeah. of plod along, and life is smooth, and everything's fine, and we believe. But then, when it's put to the test, that's when we see the value of faith. That's yeah. when God shows how faithful he is. Well, yes. I mean, I, I don't think my story would be as dramatic as some of the people that you've spoken to. 
but I think uh, regardless of how dramatic your life is or isn't, I do think that that is how God builds you. That he doesn't leave you as a baby Christian, whatever stage you become a Christian. He does develop us and enrich our relationship with him by allowing us to go through situations where he builds builds our faith. And yeah, in those in the last thirty years, I've had a few more things than than one son and one house sale. Well, let's move on to those. So you start at Emmanuel at quite a, a general level. You're a teacher and you're involved in finance, and then you gradually make your way up through the school in Emmanuel. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I I went with a teaching and a community role. Okay. So it was to try to um, develop community activities in the school and to teach English and drama. So um, little did I know, because I'd been in, in Ireland for five years, that the kind of school that Peter had opened was very controversial. There were 14 in the country, and basically they'd been put by Thatcher into labour-controlled areas, and they were to be run by businessmen instead of the local council. I didn't realise what a political firestorm I just walked into. And when it came to community activities, there were none because none of the community liked us. Okay. Um, none of the other schools would play sport with our boys and girls because um, the unions had told them not to. We couldn't rent the playing fields from the local council because the council were opposed to Emmanuel. So we had to rent Bladen Rugby Club and put the kids in a minibus and take them down for their PE lessons. Yeah, so I started off as a teacher with that community brief. Then we realised that, you know, one year old, these finance structures in the school were not solid. The, the money was being spent like water. We'd spent the whole year's allocation when I arrived. So for the whole of the year that I just arrived in the September, we'd spent everything. Wow. So Peter, because I'd had the background in running the YMCA, the finance and admin and fundraising side of all that, he said, look, the people I've appointed are basically teachers. I'm going to send somebody in from the car company to be your kind of finance bookkeeper. Would you sort things out? So with Peter's finance director and the girl he put in, we had to sort the financial side of the school out. Now, this is a school that's growing every year by another 150 kids. Yeah. So... You know, you're, you're constantly buying new furniture. You're constantly hiring new staff. There was a lot on. The first head left. We didn't have time to replace him. So a temporary head came in, in my first year. And then in my third, in my second year, they appointed a guy called John Byrne, who was an established head from Long Benton, a Christian. He knew how to run schools. So within a year of him coming, he asked me to step up on the educational side as well as the finance and admin side and one thing led to another and he basically trained me in senior school leadership so I had four years as a teacher one year at Emmanuel as a teacher and then uh, he, he taught me how to lead from a senior position and uh, so yeah I became the, the academic vice principal responsible for the academic standards at Emmanuel then when John retired I was promoted to be the principal. Yeah. Yeah, that was 1998. January the 1st, 1999, I became the principal. I have friends who teach in Emmanuel, 
and have oh. taught in Emmanuel. And they've said previously about how much of a freedom there is to be Christians, to share the faith, to speak openly about what they believe. That must be a real benefit to having a school with such a Christian ethos. Well, I think it's important to recognise, first of all, it wasn't a school for Christians only, where anybody and everybody could apply. And although there were certain limits in spaces, and we had way more children wanted to come than, than we had spaces for, probably only about five, ten kids out of every intake went to church. So it wasn't a Christian school. It was a school with a Christian ethos. Yeah. Now, you might say, well, there's plenty of those. I mean, there's all the Church of England schools, and there's the Catholic schools, and they've all got Christian ethoses. Not Christian ethos is like you and I might describe. So this wasn't Christian as in be nice to granny and raise money for, you know, poor people in Africa. This was a vision for Christian truth to be shared in education. So in other words, what do Christians really believe about truth? What do they believe about where, why we're here, what we should do while we're here? Who is this person, Christ? Let's examine him and see whether we want to, you know, follow him seriously. And that is controversial, Dan, yeah. because we're not talking about a little private school where if you want to go to that kind of school, pay some money, but don't expect the state to pay for it. That was a, a position which Thatcher had agreed to on the basis that we wouldn't only allow Christians to go to the school or teach in the school, and we wouldn't compromise the curriculum by refusing to teach what every other school taught. The thing that Emmanuel became famous for, at least for a few years around the turn of the century, was that we taught the biblical presentation of creation, as well as the evolutionary theory of Darwin. And we taught it at a level that most schools didn't. In other words, we went into the concepts of micro and macro evolution, which I'll explain in a second if, if you're not if folk aren't sure what their difference is. We talked about science as a way of explaining certain things, but that a spiritual spirituality um, was the only way of explaining other things about reality. So, for example, as Christians, we probably mostly believe in microevolution, and that is that things do adapt and change over time, that a butterfly can change through various permutations and crossbreeding, etc., etc., but a butterfly will never become a pig. Yeah. And a pig will never become a human being. So the microevolutionary steps that we see in gradual change, I think science has pretty well shown that to be true, and that's consistent entirely with our Christian worldview. But the concept of macroevolution, that things can change their species, that we can one day have been a glob of micro microorganism that through millions and billions of years changed and whatever into what we are now, you know, we don't believe the Bible teaches that, and therefore we open that to debate. Now, some Christians try to put the two together and try to say you can have both, that God is there and he did everything through evolution. So Darwin was right, and that God did allow this glob to mutate through all sorts of intermediary stages until it became us, and that Adam and Eve weren't real, uh, that they were just a kind of story for how humanity came on the earth. So we have to we have to teach kids that there are, there's that view as well. The position was that we taught the Bible view, we taught the curriculum view, 
we taught the bits where those synergize and overlap, and we taught the bits where they differentiate. Yeah. Just as we taught Judaism and Islam, as well as Christianity, and we itemized the areas where they had common views, and we itemized the areas where they were distinctly and uniquely different. For us, that was education. Um, it was very much the same way as we would teach a poem, that we would say, here's a poem, this is what the author meant, what's your interpretation of it, what have other people thought about it? What's your opinion? And eventually, you won't be able to change the fact that this is what the author meant, but you can talk about how successful and how, how you believe in that. We taught history the same way. This is how certain people believe the Nazi party grew. Yeah. And this is why other people view. This is how some people believe the American Civil War happened. This is how other, others view. So our view on education was teach children everything, answer every question they have and help them to pick their way through on the basis of evidence and their own personal perspective, how do they want to take it. And to us, that was superb education. And the education results coming out of Emmanuel were outstanding. Not because everyone was a Christian. Very few were. But because they had been taught to think and understand and critique things. Even they criticized me. They would say, oh, we don't believe that, Mr. McCoy. You know, you know we don't agree with you on that. And I say, well, tell me your view and tell me why, and I'll tell you why. And those children got expelled. <laughs> one, of, one of those guys was a head boy, actually. But what happened was, through a, a mere circumstance, whereby a church rented our hall to do a, a conference on Genesis, the National Secular Society heard about it, rang me up and said, you must cancel it. They're, not, they're nutters. You're not, you shouldn't allow a public school to be allowed to be used for them. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to ban. You know, we have Scottish country dancing. They're allowed to hire the hall. This church is allowed to hire the hall. It's not a seance. Yeah. It's not, it's not um, something that's completely contradictory to a school of the Christian ethos. So they're going to be allowed to have it. Well, we just got landed on the liberal press, the, the scientists. Dawkins had a, a real go at us. We had more inspections than anybody else to find out whether it was true. And we got grilled. I was involved in TV programs, radio interviews. You know, our views on sexuality were put through the mill. Our views on the authenticity of the Bible, whether Jesus is the only way to God. They wanted a successful school yeah. with good behavior. And loads of children wanted to come and loads of kids getting great exam results. But they didn't want us to talk about God. You know, the only law, if you look back, the only law that Ofsted have consistently allowed schools to break without doing anything to them was that every school is supposed to have a daily act of Christian worship. Yeah. And the number of Ofsted reports that came out saying the only thing they don't conform to is they don't have the daily act of collective worship. And what did Ofsted do about it? Nothing. Were any put in special measures? No. But now... They'll put you in special measures the minute they they believe you're telling anybody that Jesus is the only way to God. And we have many Muslims coming. You may know that uh, Muslims would rather go to a, a school that taught them there is a God, that they could have that faith, rather than to go to schools that said, you know, there's no such thing as God. Science has disproved him. Yeah. So, yeah, we had a really, really tough time. But we stuck to our guns, and Blair admitted that the inspectors had said there's we're not doing anything wrong. We're teaching evolution. We're teaching things in a proper way. The children are happy. 
if this was all true, the parents would be pulling their kids out left, right, and center, but they're not. The children would confirm what you're saying, but they're not. And so, whilst it's easy to talk about Christian things in Emmanuel, certainly it was, it's not easy when the world wants to preach a different story and it wants to shut you up. Yeah. We never shut up the evolution theory. We taught it. But uh, some of our Christian staff were more towards uh, God works to relieve evolution than I am. Uh, we didn't silence them. But yeah, it was it was a rough, tough time. The fact that the school consistently got some of the best marks in the country must have been a real vindication for how good the school was, though. Well, the way we ran the school was challenged by ourselves as to how Christian it was in the way we ran it. So forget what we're teaching now. Okay. We wanted our school to look as much like Jesus as we could. History will say we failed in several regards, and I look back and think we could have done things a lot better in certain regards. But one of our fundamental starting points was every child is equal in God's sight. They have different abilities but of equal value. Therefore, when all the other schools were running after trying to get five A to Cs for their kids and basically writing off the bottom, because now they'll never get it, so let's concentrate all the D kids to try to get them into Cs, we were saying, no, we're going to concentrate on every kid. And because Emmanuel had just as many children who struggled than they had children who were brilliant, we just put our efforts into every opportunity to do better than they did when they came in. So children were doing their personal best. They were, they were getting the great results for themselves. And when people interviewed us and said, how are you doing it? We made a point always of trying to give glory to God by saying, as a Christian ethos school, we believe that every child is important in God's sight. Therefore, every child matters. So the reason that we do so well is because every child is getting better. If you've got friends who are teachers, you'll know that schools don't do well if they've got a very bright group at the top or a very weak group at the bottom doesn't drag them down. What happens really is what you do with the majority who are mostly average. And if you're helping every child to make an improvement, those children, instead of getting five Bs, they were getting five Cs in bucket loads. And then, of course, 10 years later, the government changed and said, right, it doesn't matter about the attainment of schools. It matters how much progress children make when they arrive. Well, that just made the manual even better. Yeah. And the schools that we opened up and down the country, because that meant even higher scores because children were doing better. So it was down to, we believe because we put God first, he blessed us. And he challenged us to make sure that our practices, as well as what we taught, were as close to being Christian as we could make them. You were initially at Emmanuel, that was their first school as far as the project was concerned. You then opened several other schools and you were involved in those, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, the project, that's an interesting word. I mean, Peter Vardy, who sponsored the school, only sponsored one of 14. But as time went on, you may remember, or some of your listeners will remember, that the Labour Party was so against the City Technology Colleges that they were said they would close them. And Kinnock, who was due to win an election, said he's going to close all this, this PTCs. But John Major won that election by a shock. And so we had another period of time to prove that our results were outstanding. When Blair won the next election, 
he sent a guy called Andrew Adonis to visit Emmanuel and one of the other CTCs in Telford. And he interviewed me and he then realised that 90% of the children who went to our school were children of Labour voters. And therefore, why would they close these schools? And so Andrew Adonis developed and invented the Academies project, project, which basically meant instead of being forced to have a school like this, like Thatcher had, if local authorities wanted an academy, they could have one. He asked Peter, would he start, would he build an academy? And so we built one in Middlesbrough. We tried to find a head, and the, the head we found it didn't quite work before we opened. So Peter asked me to be the head of Emmanuel and the King's Academy in Middlesbrough in 2003. So I used to get in my car and run up and down the A19 like a mad thing, trying to run two schools. And then Doncaster came and asked us to open one in Doncaster. So I said to Peter, I can't run three. So I was blessed with three really good deputies. My deputy, Emmanuel, became the principal. One of my deputies in Middlesbrough became the principal of the Kings and an Emmanuel vice principal went to be principal of Trinity in Doncaster. And I became the what's called director of schools. I tried to mentor and support the three of them whilst building our fourth in Blythe. And then another vice principal from Emmanuel, she went up to be the principal at Blythe. So in 2009, the project was kind of at its maximum at that stage because we needed to keep our own leaders, because if you bring somebody from outside, they wouldn't be able to keep the vision going. And so, yeah, the project's still there. And I moved on because the four heads were competent and there were no more schools coming. And there was no point me drawing a salary out of the four schools when they were all fine. So I went to work for the government. A glance behind the curtain is that your daughter, Ashley, who's a friend of mine, she recommended you for this interview. And one of your two daughters, and, and Ashley said one of the mo- one of the things in your career was that you went from running a, a faith school and the, the whole kind of o- umbrella of all of the schools to then your faith impacting your career. I wonder how that came about. So I left Emmanuel School, Emmanuel Schools Foundation in 2008 because, amongst other things, the government asked me to go and do a piece of work on a school, a new academy that was basically failing in Carlisle. I went over and spent a fortnight there and gave them a report. Cut a long story short, they asked me that I go and be a consultant to help the people who are going to try and turn the school around. So it, it's, it was the right moment whereby my job at Emmanuel had kind of reached its completion and here was another opportunity. So I stepped away and that wasn't a paid school, that was just an ordinary school with no Christian ethos or anything. For the next three or four years, I was running up and down the country helping sponsors open new academies and academies that were struggling, trying to help them and give them advice as to how they might get back on the the right track. But none of them were any kind of church or Christian connection, which which was interesting. But I was aware that in the corridors of power, you know, I was seen as the awkward guy who a bit of a creationist, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a Bible basher. So although there was lots of work to consult and help in difficult schools, there were other avenues that I became aware I was being closed off that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be considered for. But I was offered the headship of a school in Oldham, which was putting out a completely white school together with a completely Asian school when Oldham had had race riots. 
and they'd had two heads resign in the first year of the school. And they were in a bit of a crisis with a half-built building and two schools at opposite ends of Oldham who hated each other. So I thought, hey, you know. <laughs> Here's a task. <laughs> I fancy a challenge. So I went there and, and lived in Oldham and came home at weekends for three years uh, helping establish Waterhead Academy. I think people were wary of me. They, they knew I could do big jobs, but they knew that if they took me on, that they'd have this kind of Christian voice that they weren't entirely happy with because they would far rather. I mean, the education system doesn't want Christian voices. Okay. Quite happy to talk about nice people and about character development and about let's be upright, righteous, uh, kind, compassionate people. That, that's, that's Christian with a small c. But it's not Christian of the gospel. If you are actually going to say, but as well as all those things, you've got to realize that fundamentally you're a sinner in need of a savior. Oh, they don't want that. Um, and, and, you know, we do know that our culture is increasingly secular and liberal. And it wants the one way to God through Jesus Christ and Calvary, through faith and not through works. It wants that shut off. Yeah. It basically wants to say, do what you want. Don't hurt other people. Be kind and uh, stop being divisive, you Christians. So there's less and less of a place for that voice in the public space. So there was less and less space for that voice for Nigel McCoy in the education system. Cut a long story short, I was given an opportunity to work in China. Deborah and I went to China for a five-day interview, offered the job, but it was just too far away. And when I was up, you were all in bed, and when you were all up, <laughs> I would have been in bed, so I couldn't even stay in touch with my family. But uh, a year later, I was offered a job in Qatar and took it. So I went to be the head of a school, 100% of the children of which were Muslim. But they loved my view on there being a God. They loved my view on there being a heaven and a hell, and uh, that there was a right and a wrong, and there was a right path and a wrong path, and there were scriptures to be obeyed. Family was important. And although they accepted Jesus as a prophet, not as the Son of God, 99% of what I stood for and spoke about, they, they loved yeah. And I was then offered another job in Abu Dhabi, which I took. And then finally, I spent two years in Dubai in a school of three and a half thousand Pakistani children, aged three to 18, many of whom I'm still in touch with, but all of them are Muslim. They were fascinated that I wasn't a Muslim because they thought everybody was. And they were fascinated by the difference between my faith and theirs. But in Dubai, I wasn't allowed to preach the gospel and make that clear to them. But they can Google and, you know, it's possible to find out what a Christian is if you if you want to look on the, online. So I, I know that lots of the six farmers did. And I'm still in touch with them and they, they recognize my faith and that theirs is different. It's a way of witnessing. Yeah, I left the UK scene and thrived in the Middle East. And now I'm just trying to help support schools, whether they're Christian or not. Who knew that the training you would get in Gateshead having to stand up for a Christian faith in schools would be a grounding for going and working in a Muslim school? I think the grounding was that I knew that a calm, straightforward presentation of a Christian worldview is very difficult to reject. They may not like the concept of they're a sinner and they're going to hell without Christ, but they can't deny the right of people to hear that 
message because it's been the world transforming faith. As long as you open children to their choice over their faith, the other faiths available, you give them the critical faculties to be able to analyze what they think for themselves without forcing. I mean, at the end of the day, Dan, people were concerned that I was brainwashing kids into becoming Christians. Yeah. I never would want to do that because you can't do that. You can't make a kid a Christian. Yeah. The Holy Spirit convicts and saves people. You can't make them Christians. And anyway, it's a joke because if you think that a headmaster can brainwash kids into believing anything, then none of the children in my school would have ever smoked, would have ever got drunk, would have ever slept around, yeah. would have ever been cheeky to their parents. The idea that a headmaster stands on an assembly platform and children believe everything he says is nonsense. They believe what they want to believe. And if they don't want to do what the headmaster says, they will go and do what they want. Yeah. So the idea of anybody brainwashing kids into becoming Christians in a school which is publicly open, inspected, and we have non-Christian staff, you know, it's just, it's just impossible. And it wasn't done. So because I was able to articulate an educational view that we should teach children about all of these things and answer every question they wish to ask, that holds up in every serious-minded educational establishment in the country. It's just that not every educational establishment is honourable, and you will go to some who will deliberately squash the gospel message because they've decided it's not what they believe is true. Therefore, they don't want children to, to hear it. What are they scared of? They're scared of kids turning to Christ when they don't want to. I'm not scared of kids being atheists. What I am scared of is them going to the after, you know, when they face judgment and saying, well, I went to a school that said it had a Christian ethos and they never told me that I had to come through Calvary. I don't want that on my conscience. So yeah. that's what they must hear. If they choose to reject it, I always used to say, and particularly about the head boy we just mentioned at the beginning who was an atheist, I said, I would rather a child left Emmanuel knowing the gospel and rejecting it than a child leaving Emmanuel saying, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, I thought, because I thought you'd like me to say that, Mr. McCoy. I want children to know the choice that they have. And to me, that's more important than maths and more important than physics and whatever else. Yeah. And then they can make their own decision. And then my conscience is clear. But uh, all the government wants is outstanding maths results. They don't want kids obeying the law that says every day you should have a collective act of Christian worship. I don't know why they're not repealed that, to be honest, because they hate it so much. But so few schools do it, they just say, oh, well, it's fine. And they thought they had control of state education, that nobody taught them there's a God. Everyone was taught that science has proved there isn't. And then along comes this Emmanuel College, and we've got to stop them. But they didn't, and Emmanuel's still going strong, and God willing, it will continue with its uh, presentation of the gospel and not just say that God will be happy if you're nice people. Yeah. So, Nigel, now you're kind of semi-retired and a grandparent. What are your plans for the future? Well, obviously, I've got to spoil my granddaughter. <laughs> so I've uh, I've already got the garden shed all organized so that I can teach her how not to hate spiders like Angus and Lauren do. <laughs> I'm helping some schools with their strategic plans. I've started to put together a variety of thoughts. I'm trying to write a book okay. um, which deals with 12 people, some from the Bible, some from literature, and some from my own you know, people who I've met, 
we've all had major challenges about faith and doubt. You know, just 12 little short chapters on how they've managed that. And I really just want to encourage people because I believe that the devil's strongest attack on us is is to attack our, our faith, our, our belief that actually God is there and the Bible is true. He's got lots and lots of temptations to throw at us. Yeah. But uh, I think that's his most profound one. Namely, don't believe what God said. That's what he did with Eve. He didn't really say you're going to die, did he? It really say you're not allowed to eat from every tree. So I'm writing a book. Whether it ever gets finished, whether anyone decides that anybody would read it to publish it, I'm enjoying that because it's helping me to reflect on how many times the Lord has helped me at times of doubt. So uh, it might help some other people if it ever gets written. So it's not going to be ready for this Christmas, but possibly one Christmas in the future. Oh, I think that's a good way. Possibly one Christmas in the future. <laughs> and then after that, it'll be like Cliff Richard. Every Christmas, there'll be another Nigel McCoy book come out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I, yeah. I'll, I'll leave that there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. One final question I always end on. I've kind of sprung it on you here. But is there a particular Bible verse or passage that has been a, a help throughout your life? The one that's meant the most to my life is that Corinthians uh, verse that I quoted, where in the end of the day, a Christian's life will be examined under fire. And then what, what will you have to give to the Lord as your gift? Not to buy your way into heaven, but after all he's done for me, I wanted to have something, even if it's just a little jewel of having told some people in Gateshead about the Lord. I wanted to have that to give him and not just everything burn away. So that would be, that would be my key verse that I think it's had the biggest impact on my life. But in terms of encouraging me, you know, the whole Bible, it's fresh every day. If you go to it with open eyes and an open heart, um, the Lord reveals his message for you at that time. Not always a big answer. Sometimes he just feeds you with, with bread that you'll need in a few months to, to live off. No, I would say if you're a Christian listening, make the most of it. Don't, you know, don't build up for yourself a life that won't have any significance to the Lord. Do whatever you can, however big or small, so that you've got some little precious jewel to, to lay at his feet. And if you're not a Christian, just that you would think about what, what messages and stories that you are told, either from your school or your university or the media, that doesn't want you to really consider Christ seriously. As I've said about the kids at my schools, Think about Christ and come to your own decision. But my advice would be don't reject God Almighty because he holds your eternity in his hands. And for the free gift of salvation and forgiveness through Calvary, it's very little to give your life back to him. God bless you, whoever you are listening. I hope I've answered most of your questions. That's been great. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you for listening to Testimony. If you have any suggestions as to who would make a good interview, then please get in touch at testimonypodcast at outlook.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.